DE Vogus Bolshevik Lauer Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Lauer Podcast. I'm David Smith. I'm joined today by Podge Gaffney, Franny Walsh, and Orm Fitzpatrick. Welcome, lads. Today, we're going to be discussing our first ever sports autobiography on the podcast, which is Andre Agassi's Open. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Before we get stuck into that, I'll catch up with the lads. Podge, how are you? How's your weekend going? Uh, yeah, all going well, Smith. Just finished up there. Um, I was in my old school. I was back in Avon for a few weeks, subbing, so just up to midterm. So I'm actually finished for a little while. We're going to do a little bit of travelling now. So I have a wee trip planned for Eastern Europe, uh, Greece, Romania, then over to Switzerland to my brother um, for a few weeks. And look forward to that. And then I'm going out to Mexico with Sis in December. So that's a lot of planning being done the last few days. Bank account looks fairly shot, but uh, now very excited. Sis handed in her notice there the other day, so it was great. We kind of had to keep it almost secret for a while, just because you know, because our colleagues and boss and stuff would follow me on Instagram and places, so you don't want to, them to find out that way. Like, so it's nice to be able to be open about it and, and get excited. So, yeah, that's that's the biggest news of me, you know. But um. Yeah, I was back in my old school for a few weeks and that was great to see everyone again and uh, went for a few drinks after work. So, uh, yeah, all good. A lot more news than we usually have. <laughs> Happy days. Long as the trip when you head to Mexico, I think you're going to travel for a few months then, aren't you? Yeah, so um, well, we're doing a TEFL course online at the moment and the plan is to fly. We're flying to Mexico City, start of December, make our way south, hopefully maybe spend Christmas in Mexico as well, and then eventually make our way towards Peru, Chile. Ecuador and Peru, February, March is the perfect time to teach English. So we're thinking of maybe, that'll be about three months in, which I'd say we'll be fairly tired by then. So I'd say we'll park up for a month, teach some English, hopefully uh, replenish the funds a little bit, and then see how far we can go. Yeah, the plan is to, to come back in July. So do maybe, I don't know, six, seven months and come home then. But that's, yeah, looking forward to it. I'm significantly more boring, certainly, than Podge, with his jet setting and big plans for the for the next few months, which sounds absolutely unreal. But, um, yeah, no, nothing hectic plans. Um, have a quiet one today. Um, probably just get a bit of lunch, chill out. Um, we've got barbecue planned for tomorrow. That'd be nice. I'll catch up with another couple of lads I haven't seen since lockdown, back, lockdown kicked in back in July. First weekend, last weekend, was got a little bit hectic, but we managed to get through it and we're at the other side of it, so... No, getting some nice plans together for the next couple of months, a few tickets getting booked, and it was all very exciting, and yeah, it's a bit more positive than it has been for the last few uh, last few months. What about yourself, Matt? Yeah, I'm not too much. I went for a pizza with yourself last night and a few beers, and going to head into the city today for uh, just a walk and a bit of shopping, maybe. Franny, what's crack with you? What are you at for the weekend? You're fully vaxxed now? Yeah, uh, fully vaxxed. Uh, just finished a heavy enough week of work. And then I'm doing not too much tomorrow. It's a bank holiday weekend here. So I'm going to Wexford Town on Sunday. Uh, I was supposed to be going to Oktoberfest there, but that got cancelled because there was a lot of kind of uh, uncertainty around when the government were releasing restrictions and when they were allowing big gatherings and stuff like that. So the organisers cancelled that. But uh, yeah, going to Wexford Town anyway and going to whatever establishment there will uh, take me in. See how I get on. 15 left. Yeah, so as I mentioned at the start of the episode, lads, this is our first autobiography or sports autobiography on the podcast. I'm just wondering, like, do you read many autobiographies? Um, I actually, yeah, I tend to only read, I haven't read that many, to be honest, but I'd read mostly sport autobiographies, top of my head. Most recently, would be Paul McGrath's, which was grand. 
Perlows, which is not really autobiography. I know it's not like it is, but it's not the same style as, say, this one where it starts from kind of childhood and works its way through his life. I suppose before that, years ago, like Jamie Carragher, Gerard, very much sport ones. So, yeah, I mean, no, it wouldn't be one, it wouldn't be a genre I'd go for. Uh, this book's always been kind of one that I've been told, oh, geez, you must read this book. So I was glad it was put up onto the, onto the podcast uh, list. Otherwise, it would have been on the long finger, I'd say, for ages. But no, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be genre. And it's kind of confirmed that it's just not my type of book, to be honest. I just, I think I'm a bit, maybe a bit cynical with it, uh, especially American, maybe sports people or, I don't know, it just seems very polished or something is the word. I'm trying to think of like, like everything just seems to be so neatly tied up and drafted and edited so well and like the protagonist says the perfect thing at the right time or a friend will say this nugget of wisdom and I think this book in particular had a lot of that and it just seemed a bit unbelievable or something so yeah family I didn't I didn't really enjoy that aspect of it I, I wouldn't mind reading an autobiography of like something different maybe an actor or something like just be might just be a little bit different I don't know if you know any good ones like that I know the scar tissue is meant to be really really good Franny I think you've read that Anthony Kiedis is the one, yeah, very, very good. Brilliant, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not really not a biography, but I bought a book, um, I was asked my uncle about, like, a book on the Beatles. Yeah, no, it's not an autobiography, but, like, something like that, I think I really enjoyed, like, the music. Kind of so I suppose Kiedis would be cool. I say I'll get that on travel. I think that'll be the only one. Yeah, Kiedis' book is good, right? It's kind of, he himself is a, a highly controversial individual. Like, I suppose anyone who knows, who's read the book will know what I'm on about. Like, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a bit fucked, really, like, the stuff they go on with. but it is very interesting to see like the background to like so many great music so much great music and so many great albums and stuff like that and it's also kind of good to marvel at how they managed to even record a single tune considering all the shit they were getting up to but yeah actually i kind of i kind of was just thinking there that that's probably one autobiography that i would re- have say i would have really enjoyed um as a rule i'm not mad about them any sports autobiographies i've read i have kind of found that you'd really want to be heavily into the sport in question to really get the most out of it and like ideally maybe even have seen the actual events taking place on the telly and being like oh yeah like I remember that match or that race or whatever and then kind of when you're seeing it from then that person's perspective it kind of adds something to it when someone's reflecting on things they've done themselves there's obviously an opening for kind of bullshit there and and, and like you're kind of wondering well like they're obviously trying to sell this in such a way as to make themselves look good actually an autobiography I think that deserves a that deserves a mention here is uh, Goggins is one David Goggins is one that we we discussed this in the book club in the pre-podcast days. It was my recommendation and everyone else was kind of like, uh, they, they weren't that mad about it. I thought it was very, very good. But like, I thought there was some real parallels to be drawn between that and Agassiz's book as well um, in terms of like the difficult upbringing and, uh, and the effects that has in terms of pursuing goals and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that would, Goggins' one was another one I really enjoyed. I think that's interesting you said about like revisiting the past. I think there is a lot of revisionism and a lot of autobiographies I've read. And this one especially as well, like it's easy to misbehave. Like, for example, in, you know, Agassiz saying that he called the uh, same profanities at the linesman and getting kicked out. Like, I'm sure he was having a bad day at the time. He was just being a bit of a dick. But now he can be like, well, actually, at that time, I was going through this other stuff. Like, it's easy to make yourself a saint or a sinner to suit the story, I think, 20 years or 10 years. That's later. what I mean by the, the, yeah. the polished aspects. That's what I mean. Like, it's just so clean. Like, it. They can easily, yeah, like hindsight's great and they can take a look back and exactly what you said, just clean it up and tidy it up, any loose ends or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, autobiographies, I'm kind of mixed between the two. Yeah, like 
I obviously love sport and watch a lot of sport and I write about sports, but I used to find that that was almost, I'd want to not read sports autobiographies as a result because sport would consume so much of the rest of my life that I didn't want to read about it constantly in my spare time on top of all the articles and everything else. You know, when I was younger, like you, Podge, I would have read like Gerard Carraher, I think Robbie Fowler's book. I read a couple like Frank Lampard's and Dennis Wise that were good as well. But as I've gotten older, yeah, probably the best ones I've read in recent years have been music autobiographies actually as well. I'm obviously a big Bruce Springsteen fan, but his Born to Run book is so well written. That's really good if you like him, I suppose, maybe if you're not a fan of him. And I read a good one recently. Um, Mikel Jolette, who's the singer from the Airborne Toxic Event, wrote a memoir about growing up in a cult in America and like getting escaping from the cult and stuff. And that was just not not even that the band or that big or anything, or but it was just his story and the way he told it was very interesting. And then a couple of biographies, like I know, Podge, we read Bring the Noise, the book on Jurgen Klopp which was brilliant, I thought. Like, that was a really, really good book. And a couple of, yeah, biographies on, like, I read one called The Journey, or, sorry, The Volunteer, about a guy, um, a Polish man who volunteered to enter Auschwitz to, like, sabotage it from within. That was really good. So I think it depends on the subject matter. And I wouldn't write off the whole genre for me, but it it definitely takes a particular kind of book for me to enjoy, I think. Just on the point of uh, biographies, there was one I read, uh, it was about Michael O'Leary, but it was it was by Matt Cooper. But I think like it was just on the point that you said about kind of like there's a there's a different sort of an element to a biography as opposed to an autobiography. Like that book, like obviously because Michael O'Leary is such a divisive character and has done a lot of controversial stuff in his time, you know, you're not going to get that kind of honest look into those kind of events from him himself. And you know, I know even for that particular book, he declined to be interviewed, I think. So, like, you know, it's obviously, it's interesting to get an angle on it that, you know, isn't afraid to be a bit antagonistic and, and point out the flaws and what was going on where you're, gonna, like, you're obviously never going to get that really with an autobiography. From an autobiography's point of view, you nearly need to have, like, know the character much better than that to be your sole source. I found with Agassi there, like, I know absolutely nothing about him. I know very little about tennis. And I just kind of viewed it as really, really problematic because I was reading it thinking this is probably not the way anybody else thought. So this is maybe part of the truth, but not the whole lot of it. So if you know somebody a lot better in the story around it and kind of all the other players that were there and the different kind of, you know, what was happening in the world at the time, it'd be better. But uh, yeah, to be honest, autobiographies, autobiographies in general, I've never really been attracted to. I read Jared's years and years ago when I was in secondary school. Like, again, I found he was very kind of, I didn't think I was that good. I didn't think I was that good. And then all of a sudden, I was captain of Liverpool Football Club. And you're like, come on, <laughs> you clearly knew you were all right. Again, with Jared, though, it was a little bit easier because I kind of knew, I knew the story, not just from his angle, but from my own and everybody else's. I'd, I'd be intrigued by a few of the musician ones because I think there's more of a story in those as well, isn't there? They're a bit more, they're a bit more mad. I think the part of this book I liked was the start where there was a story and there was different characters and there was a bit of adversity and something to overcome, not just, and then this happened, and then I did this, and then this happened. Well, the, the scoreboard said I lost today, but what the scoreboard doesn't say is what it is I have found. And over the last 21 years, I have found loyalty. You have pulled for me on the court and also in life. I have found inspiration. You have willed me to succeed, sometimes even in my lowest moments. I think that brings us nicely in. Oren, you touched on there, um, Agassiz's childhood and the start of the book. Obviously, that's a major role. And like I knew nothing about that entering the book. I thought that was really interesting. Franny, did you like that kind of first third of the book? So it started with, 
uh, his kind of farewell tournament at the US Open in 2006 and then very quickly jump back to him as a seven-year-old. Did you like the way that was done? Yeah, it sets it up. It sets the whole thing up very well, I think, that first chapter because you're kind of getting a sense of his like angst with the whole thing and you're, you get introduced to this idea of I hate tennis and you're kind of like, oh, like, what's this about? Like, you know, you're a tennis player and you're kind of like, you're wondering from the word go how this comes about. And then you kind of realize that and as you see, you go through his childhood and stuff. You're like, you know, you kind of, it's something you don't think about, I suppose. And you think of like a professional sports player, like what went into that and what they were like from childhood. But if like, I know like there's a lot of these stories that do start out this way and it's kind of like, it kind of makes you wonder what does go into producing someone that's capable of these amazing, great feats on the on on the sports pitch. But like I thought, that was like a really compelling uh, story. That the first part that the with the and where he's explaining his relationship with his father and how he grew up in Nevada and stuff. I thought that was definitely the best part of the book. You feel so sorry for him, but at the same time, you realise that that maybe is what's necessary to to inspire these. these these great people and these like elite sports people that can do these things it's like sometimes people just need that that really harsh environment when they're young i'd agree I, I thought that was the most authentic part of the book i kind of found the rest of it and maybe it comes with being a professional athlete he, the further he got on in his career the more and more arrogant he seemed and the more i was like oh he's just kind of boring and annoying now it just became very regimented and all sort of thing whereas when he was a kid there was that as part of the story there was far more Kind of far more variables and he was going to school and there's more challenges and you kind of you obviously know he becomes a professional tennis player but you weren't sure exactly how all this sort of thing played out when he was in that academy and um, all the difficulties there and he's kind of coming up against your man whoever's running that school the relationship there and how that developed and the, his pushback against him and that sort of thing the further he get into his career it just became a bit more controlled I, I don't know yeah just a bit contrived or something that felt for me yeah I, I agree with the lads completely I think it was um it was more of a story I think um maybe because the more you get into the book the more um repetitive it gets maybe just with all the games he plays and I just felt every kind of game rolled into one near the end and um but the with the start of the book it was kind of um, you, yeah, you really did feel sorry for him and you felt for him and he kind of, yeah, he, he managed to bring across like how strict and fucking terrifying his father was and angry and he, um, and the pressure he felt as a young child and like, I, I think, I, I don't know why, but I did kind of know, I don't know where I knew or where I heard it from, but I knew that he had a tough childhood and I think maybe I think it's from someone maybe recommending the book to me or something and comparing them to like a Tiger Woods almost, you know, like like a very tough father who who almost like forced him and said, Right, this is this is what you're gonna do with your life and that's it. And I thought it was really interesting when he kinda of went in detail about his siblings and how he was like the last chance to be like a famous Agassi and like even describing his father why his father was so obsessed with tennis and like how he like, you know, and even like looking for the house, for the for the space, for the tennis court and all that, and how obsessed his father was. I thought that was really, really interesting. And it just kind of showed, like it wasn't just my father was really tough on me. He made me play tennis every day. It was like, it was a bit of layer there, you know. It was, it was a bit of depth behind the character of the father, you know. Um, didn't think Rashid would make an appearance again in their podcast, but there you go. I thought so as well. I actually thought like the first third of the book maybe was 
absolutely exceptional. Like uh, even the 2006, I think the opening chapter set it up so well, as Franny said, like the emotion of his last tournament and his conflicted feelings right up until the end about I hate tennis. And then the way even I loved, it was pretty seamless going back to his childhood and the whole thing with the dragon and the tennis court. It's a real American dream ideal thing that parents have. Like I watched a documentary recently on Britney Spears and her mother had earmarked her to be a star before she was born, basically. And it's obviously the same with Agassi and then like Tiger Woods and people, the pressure that's on them. You know, like kids in America being put into pageants and stuff when they're like babies and stuff like that. I, I remember reading that Klopp book I mentioned earlier, Podge, and you've read it as well. But his dad was really hard on him to be a soccer player and stuff as well and made him train constantly. And like, it was, it's miserable a lot of the time, but Klopp says himself, he wouldn't have been probably a player or a manager without that. I know it's like, it causes difficulties with your parent, but as Franny said, maybe that's what you need to be the elite athlete in a lot of cases. Not, maybe not, some people need. Not just with your parent though, but like, it's very evident in, in Agassiz's book that it clearly has an incredible effect on him throughout his life with his anger issues and everything. And he has clearly a lot of issues he needs to sort out with his inner, inner relationships and all of that. So yeah, like, like not only your parents, but like it's, it's like a, it's a heavy price to pay to be that good at whatever, you know? And he does surround himself with people who kind of pander to him and kind of, you know, and he needs, even says himself, he needs to have, he can't really be alone. He can't really handle being alone because, I don't know, maybe his head goes 90 when he's alone and starts thinking about tough childhood, tough parents, that kind of stuff. The buzzing of all that, like. I don't mean to trivialise his, like, the trauma of that. I'm just wondering, like, you know, would he have made it if that wasn't the case? There's a certain amount of push that's obviously needed, but do you reckon these are just the stories that we hear? Like, you know, you're obviously going to hear about Tiger Woods. He was number one in the world and he'd have ridiculously hard upbringing. But like, how many other number ones have there been in golf? How many other superstar tennis players? Like, you know, did Roger Federer have a dad who forced him to face up to a dragon every... I don't know, do I completely agree with the idea that all oh, this, this is necessary to get to the top of any sort of sport? I think it's one way of doing it, but I think there's far healthier and better ways to go about it. I kind of view it as like ramming a square peg into a round hole sort of thing. You know, you can sculpt and encourage kids and they can grow and develop naturally. It might take them longer. Maybe Agassi wouldn't have done it, but maybe there are more kids if they're encouraged, they'd become number ones rather than if they were beaten into submission. You know, how many kids from that academy didn't make the tour, didn't keep going, didn't play tennis because it was the sport was beaten out of them. Yeah, I, I find that element a bit sad. When you think about children and going through sports, and it should be something that's just done for it should be you kind of should be doing it for the challenge. Um, it's great for learning about how to overcome adversity, not just learn how to be arrogant and how to just keep going and be a bit of a dick and abuse everybody and just expect everything um, to fall up like to come to you uh, if you put in all that hard work. I did find one thing interesting about this is that how mentally fragile like he was as a player. Like, you know, usually when you read these books or you watch The Last Dance with Michael Jordan and like he was always a winner and a champion. His mindset was unbreakable, like he's bulletproof. And then obviously you read like if it's Gerard or whatever and you're used to the last minute winners and finals and that unshakable belief in themselves. Whereas Agassiz openly talking about falling apart in hundreds of tennis matches in this book. I thought that was interesting. Seems to be a bit unique to uh, tennis and golf. I, I thought about that during the book. I was like, maybe it's the fact, you know, I think he touches on it as well at one point where it's like, it's literally just you out there in the court. Like you've nothing, you've no teammates to fall back on. Like I know Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan, obviously, but there were other players on that court. So there were other players doing things, there were other players putting in, taking shots and um, getting points for the team, taking over. He's obviously the main driving force, but other players were doing 
same with anybody, same with, you know, if you look at Ronaldo, you look at any of these players, it's not just them, they're only winning titles, all that sort of stuff. Whereas I feel, yeah, the likes of golf, the likes of tennis, like, if you do something, everybody's literally just looking at you and it's just you versus one other person. And the other person, I think that was his point in this, the other person is like trying to beat you. Like everything they do is make you look shit. Like so it's just constant pressure on all the time. I thought it was interesting how you compared it to boxing so much as well. Like there are a lot of similarities, I suppose, when you think about it. Yeah, and he's, he's fairly open about how many people around him like he needs. Like I kind of pointed out already, but like to be successful, I think he, he does give a lot of time in the book to the people who, you know, said the right thing or, or did the right training program. Yuan Gill gets a lot of airtime in the book. And it's kind of cool that he that he does give these guys due diligence because uh, even though it's a lone sport and you're on your, like you are on your own on the court and yeah, it kind of, you lose, you win or lose on your own. But like, it just shows how many people are in the background to get someone in a lone sport like that to these Grand Slams or whatever. And it's not really like you are on, you're on your own on the day and all that, but like it takes a team really, doesn't it? Like to, to get to, to be a champion or whatever. And I thought that was, that was well handled as well for him. How did you feel about, Granny might say to you about like the personal relationships, you enjoy that with like Wendy and Brooke and obviously later Steffi. How did you feel about kind of his personal life in the book? I found... I really, when I really started disliking this book was the part at which he set his eyes on Steffi Graf. I was kind of like, that was the point at which I realized like I couldn't actually like him as a person because it starts with, first of all, he's going after another man's woman and he's trying to present this as something that's kind of like, okay. And that like, we should kind of be supporting him through it. You know, fair enough. It's his autobiography and it's the way things happen. And he's trying to be honest about it, maybe. But, like, I, I feel like there was no real acknowledgement of the fact that he was doing that. And that, like, made me kind of... Like, fair enough if it happened that way, maybe. And, like, it was the best thing for both of you. Then, like, you know, who's anyone to say that it was the wrong thing? But I think there should have been a little bit more of an acknowledgement of, like, you know, the fact that, like, he was just... He was completely fucking this other third person's life and kind of making no apology about it. And then after that, I found, like, there was a really a real like strict kind of a dichotomy between like the relationship with Steffi and the relationship with Brooke Shields. There was always this kind of foreshadowing element with Brooke Shields where it was like things weren't working and like she wasn't the right person for him and you kind of got it from a long way out. Whereas with Steffi, there's no indication that anything is wrong ever. It's like they live in like just like the happy land all the time and it's kind of like, well, yeah, it's because you're still married to her. Like you can't say anything else. So I kind of found that that was a small bit insincere. Yeah, it was actually at that point that I kind of I really started having problems with the book was when she came into it. That's probably where biographies are better than autobiographies. Yeah, like it just gets a bit unbelievable, doesn't it? When when it's a bit, it's extremely biased. In that in you know, with being safe or you know, wanted to say the right thing at the right time. I thought it was it was yeah, very on the nose with uh, with Brooke. Yeah, he he didn't hold back. Uh, I don't know. I don't like that, to be honest. I know, look, you have to, he has to bring that into the book and autobiographies, but it's a little bit kind of like, I don't want to be reading this. It's very personal, like, you know, and it's not really fair on her. He doesn't really shine her in a good light a lot of times. And, and same as that, when it gets to Steffi, it's just like, all right, the book's nearly over. <laughs> you know, he's probably like, I could go into more detail on this and say the shite stuff, but no, I want to end the book on a happy note, maybe. But uh, I'd, uh, I'd love to hear Brooke Shields' side of things because I thought he just sounded like a complete asshole in that whole relationship, like the whole friend saga and everything. <laughs> I was like, yeah. 
maybe I'm being, maybe I'm a bit too judgmental. I started off really empathizing with Agassi and really liking him as a character. And as the further the book went on, I started to dislike him more and more. I had this big thing of this chip in the shoulder about I'm perceived as image is everything and shallow and all this, but I'm really deep and I hate tennis. He came across that way in a, in a lot of ways. He's like, people see me as shallow and then he's like, I did up this bachelor pad on the next page and put in this. I bought a private jet. I got this car, this 1960s car. And I thought with Brooke, he would give out that she didn't ask about his tennis match or know the player he was playing. But then as she pointed out to him, I think when things went sour, that like he'd be sitting in a restaurant with like directors and poets and artists and he didn't care. Like I thought one of the things he came across really badly where he went on holidays and she wanted to do scuba diving course with him and he just got out of the pool. It's like, I don't want to do this. seems like he's miserable for most of the marriage because he's losing at tennis rather than, and then he's putting it all on her. I found now, obviously we don't have a direct insight to the relationship and it's he said, she says, but I didn't think he came out of it smelling like roses at all, whereas he was very harsh on her then for the remainder of the book, kind of like, which, yeah, it didn't sit that well with me. And then as Franny said, the Steffi thing, like parts, but I thought it was endearing the initial, the image of a superstar celebrity being really nervous about like trying to organize a training session with her. But then some of the stuff, like him whipping off his top for the training session and he's saying she did a barely detectable double take. Fuck off, I guess, you know. And his, it was like preparing for the land and sea invasion of Germany, like trying to court her. Like, I was just, I was having none of that, to be honest. Excellent. <laughs> I think the same to there. Yeah, that way. <laughs> Fuck off, I can see. <laughs> so next episode, we're doing. <laughs> yeah, next time around. The Friends debacle was clearly just put in. Editor saying, oh yeah, you have to mention Brooke being on Friends. Like, you know, that kind of way. I just yeah, kind of felt that as well. And like, I don't know, maybe it was, was it blown up a little bit? It was honest, though, in fairness to him. Like, the, his description of what happened was fairly honest. Like, you know, it didn't paint him in a particularly positive light. No. You know, yeah, true. He didn't try to dress it up, but... Yeah. Yeah, I watched that scene, actually, after I read that. I watched that on YouTube, and she does go to town on his hand, in fairness. Hypothetical question. Your girlfriend's an actor. She's sucking Matt LeBlanc's hand, rolling her eyes. What do you do? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you're going to have to cut that one out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, oh good. That's it good. took me a minute to register. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I thought the, the crystal meth thing was obviously very kind of shocking I suppose and it kind of comes out of nowhere too I mean you don't see any indication of it coming from the events that came in the book previously and it's obviously not something you would expect of a of an elite sports person but to be fair I thought he dealt with it very honestly like you know he made no bones about it really and you know I suppose fair play to him for a certain to a certain extent for for dealing with it so frankly um I know he encountered some controversy in the tennis world after the book came out or after it became public knowledge that maybe he should have been stripped of certain titles or something but he did kind of throw his friend Slim under the bus when he was telling that story and, and, you know, he kind of revealed how he made it out to be more his fault when really he did actually uh, voluntarily take Matt. You know, for all that, I suppose you'd have to say fair play to him for being, for being straight about it. It was certainly an entertaining aspect of the story, I found, you know, really it was, it was really something unexpected. Yeah, definitely. And it's the type of thing that sells autobiographies if you're going to be cynical about it, you know, and there's always in every autobiography, whether it's Alex Ferguson saying, making some massive claim they're the kind of things that get in the papers and make sales as well no one would have known i'm sure that he had done that so he did choose to come clean i guess for better or worse so that was pretty honest he did right i think that's why 
while you're reading autobiography to get those insights that you can't get from anybody else. Um, so yeah, from that point. But yeah, I find it so, so bizarre that just all of a sudden he's on crystal meth of all drugs and very, very strange. He really went from not to 60, all right? Like, there was no, like, you know, <laughs> there's nothing in between. He just started smoking crystal meth out of nowhere. Generally, you'd kind of think maybe they're at a party. You know, there's some story behind it. It's like, no, it's just sitting at home. And I had to do some meth and clean the house. It's not what you associate with an athlete. It was kind of refreshing in ways to see him be like, yeah, I had a Burger King. I needed it. Or like, I was out drinking. It's just, he obviously had all the talent, but like, you wonder, could he have had, as much as he had an unbelievable career, like, could he have hit even better heights? Like, remind you, like Rooney or someone like that, maybe? And that's where I think maybe if his upbringing is different and he's encouraged and shown how to handle success and be successful, like, like the likes of Federer, then he doesn't end up binging on alcohol, on fast food, on crystal meth. You know, there was no control to him. It was just all out kind of pure emotion sort of thing, which if you're talented and skilled, you'll win things definitely. But it didn't seem to me anyway that he, that he had much consistency. Now, I know absolutely nothing about tennis, and I'm not going to pretend that I do, but it would seem that he could have been an awful lot better, even. He wasn't half bad, though. I mean, I was just interested, because, like, even though I wouldn't be a big tennis fan, he, obviously, it's just a name that you just know, like, Andre Agassi. Just, and I looked him up, and, like, he is regarded as, like, by a lot of people, by most people, top five, top ten ever. And then you're reading it, and you're like, well, the man's fecking. He did, like, the four grand slams, and he did, how many you get in total? Did you get eight in total, maybe? Yeah. Eight or nine? He wanted you know. only players ever to do the Super Slam as the four big ones on Olympic gold. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Olympic gold. So, like, we're saying he could have been better, but, I mean, he didn't do half bad either. So, like, who is regarded as the best ever tennis player? Would you know? Probably. Well, people would say the current three, like, is that arrogance. Like, Rod Laver. Oh, Djokovic, man. Is Djokovic considered best ever? Nadal, like they're all, I suppose, in the tussle as the modern greats. But then there's like Rod Laver and stuff from back in the day, and then like. Tim Henman you know, was pretty good, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like if you look at even like soccer players, if you compare soccer players from 2000 to now, like the conditioning is insane. Even GAA players from 2000 to to now, like they're prolonging their careers. Like I don't know how old Djokovic is, but he's definitely wise. He's mid thirties. Federer is forty, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, so like, I mean, like it, the, the big thing in the book is how like he's 33, 34, 35. And that's like, if you're reading that book, I'd say when it came out, I think you'd have maybe a bit more appreciation being like, holy shit, he's 33 and he's playing Grand Slams. But I suppose we're a little bit uh, spoiled with Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, you know, and it's just, oh yeah, sure, why wouldn't he be playing? Or like Ronaldo, 36, playing fucking Ibrahimovic, these lads. And um, it's just interesting. So maybe if uh, Agassi was playing in this era, would he be better? It's an interesting question, I suppose. I suppose we've grown up probably more with like yeah, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic. We started talking about playing Federer and Nadal and he said like, he compared them both differently, but he, I think he said about Nadal, he'd never seen anyone move like that on a court. And it was interesting. I was looking up his record against Federer after and I think they played 11 times and Agassi beat him the first three times and Federer was like, fresh-faced teenager or whatever. And then Federer beat him eight times in a row before Agassi retired. So, and I think that the tail end of the book goes into like the strings on the racket that he, people, he could even hit the ball like he never hit it before. And like conditioning, everything was coming on so far that I'm sure players now, you, you wouldn't hear Djokovic smashing the Burger King in a few because the night before a Grand Slam. <laughs> so I'd say things have come on a lot in a short space of time. His life has been 36 years of tennis. He is- 
with his dad striking a ball in the crib before he was one year old. So there's a lot of emotion to pour out. Uh, I thought I well I'd like to talk about the character of the father actually because I thought he was just so funny. Like obviously he was kind of well he was funny and he was kind of obviously nearly tragic in a way. Tragic for himself and tragic for the impact he had on his family. But he wasn't unilaterally one way or the other. Do you know what I mean? Like he was careful to kind of show that there was good things about him and that he wasn't a t- complete tyrant. But clearly he wasn't also like you know the sort of emotionally supportive parent that you'd ideally have. There was some stuff about him, like I thought one particularly funny part is where he sent him to the, the Bollettieri Academy after he saw the thing on 60 Minutes because he thought it was an advertisement that it, it turns out it was actually like a 60 Minutes expose on how they were like exploiting kids. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Even like later on in the book where he actually had to stop him from fighting Steffi Graf's dad like the first time they met when they were like squaring up to each other and about to box ahead off each other. thought that was good. I thought the um, almost fight between... Andre's dad and Steffi's dad was maybe a bit of a, a, I don't know what would you call it, a bit of an inkling into the idea that it's not just, it wasn't just him who had that sort of upbringing. It wasn't just his dad who was that sort of character and it was just part of the tennis world that that's the type of parent that you had sort of thing. So I just thought that was interesting that the two dads were that sort of character that they'd fight each other on a, on a tennis court. Like. And even I thought it was kind of touching towards the end when Agassi was prolonging his career, probably against the advice of everyone. And his dad actually said to him, like, I can't, I can't watch anymore. Like, this is hurting me to please give up. Like that he'd almost come full circle and seen the fire side of it then. The tennis wasn't everything. Or It kind of comes back then again to like how, you know, does that, it obviously does kind of, it makes stars of people that might not necessarily be stars, you know. Like I know we've said it's not the only way to make someone that's an elite tennis player or an elite sports person of any of any stripe, but would Andre Agassi have been the player he was without that sort of motivation from his father? Like, probably not. Yeah, we don't we don't hear a lot of from about his mother, really, do we? Like, it's just like there's only a few bits mentioned in his childhood and stuff. How she, you know, doesn't not doesn't really go into a lot of detail on her. I suppose she seems to be the one though that held it together, and that's yeah. like she's not as maybe significant as a driving force, maybe, but. I think as an encouragement and as somebody like who was always there who held it together who you know stayed with the dad who held it all together a bit more I differ an opinion there I think he he could have been a star if the psychology was better it's one way to do it I, and that's what I mean I, I don't mean to diminish his achievements and um, in that he like he obviously was an unbelievable tennis player but if somebody had stepped in and said right you don't need to be angry you can achieve by not being angry and by, you know, encouraging yourself and getting further and being positive rather than just being constantly negative, saying, oh, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. But, I mean, you'll, you'll never know. I'm, I'm definitely not educated enough to say the, the positivity mindset is better than just a constant negative one. Well, I suppose you're right, Norn, as well. Like, I mean, he, he, his, you mentioned earlier his consistency as well. I mean, like, the way he, when he lost, it wasn't just, like, a minor setback. It was, like, he'd lose and then he'd go rock bottom a lot of times. And then he'd go right back to the top. It was almost like bipolar disorder. You know, it was just like he'd be number one in the world, Grand Slam, everything's going great. And then he'd have like a really tough loss in a final. And then instead of just kind of regrouping maybe and maybe just looking, checking a few things to fix. He's obviously very good if he's in a Grand Slam final or whatever. But he would just kind of lose the rag. And that's what I mean. That's, that's probably where the impact of the childhood, I think maybe he, couldn't, he wasn't able to handle that because he, he was always the best growing up. He was always told you have to be the best, you have to be the best. When he wasn't the best, he wasn't able to emotionally handle it. I thought that was interesting and if he had been able to, if he had maybe gone to therapy earlier, if he had got himself kind of looked at, 
um, earlier in his life. Who knows? Maybe he would have, you know, won way more. I, I think he, yeah, he probably would have. Like he would have definitely kept himself in more games. He okay. talks about it in it that like, oh, I just like I crashed out. Like I just you know completely lost my head and all that sort of thing. Whereas he lost if, the will yeah, and the like passion he, for himself. Yeah, exactly. If he can keep himself going, he's kind of there, thereabouts, and it's more like a war of attrition than just I have to hammer this lad. It's just like I kept myself in the game. He made a mistake. I could capitalize on that. Rather than, yeah, I went out and just, I was the best I could be. I think he mentions it in the book about there's only five times where, on a, yeah, as a tennis player goes out and they're just unbeatable because they're just completely in flow. Whereas that's probably rings through for all of the greats, including the likes of Federer, what we're watching now. But what they've got is the ability to go, okay, I'm not at my best today, but I don't need to be at my best to win. I can be at 80%. And if I do 80% perfectly, then that's going to keep me here, it's going to keep me going. Unless somebody else is having one of those days, I can win this win this tournament, win this game or whatever. I did enjoy the little petty arguments with different players and, you know, players like Jimmy Connors who are legends of the game and Boris Becker and Axie's like, they were pricks. You know, they, they weren't a bit nice to him or like, even I think he was saying Connors when he retired, was it the last the US Open and everyone was giving him the ovation and Connors was just standing with a big tick heading him over in the corner like, there obviously is a lot of politics and hatred and stuff. And it's good to, I think it's good to see that going on in sport. You don't want sport to sanitize a lot of time now, I think. Like you want great rivalries, whether it's like Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua or whatever the sport is. Yeah, I really enjoyed the, the Sampras and Agassi rivalry throughout. And I'm not a big tennis fan, but I obviously, you know, Pete Sampras and, you know, Agassi and just how they just kept meeting each other. And like, it was, it was like a, like a Messi Ronaldo kind of a thing, wasn't it? And every sport has that. And, um, he even said that when Pete retired, he was like, he was sad when Pete retired, which I was really cool that he, met, he said that because if Pete Sampras wasn't there, Agassi would have had maybe double uh, Grand Slams, but he said he wouldn't have, I can't remember what exactly he said, but he wouldn't have, it would have mattered or something like that. Or like he, Grand Slams, he did have mattered a lot more because he was playing in the same time as Pete Sampras, who was unbelievable. Do you know what I mean? I actually thought he lost way more to Sampras and then when he kind of had his total up near the end and he was like he would beat him I think it was a 3-1 on finals and I was like jeez it was actually a lot closer than I thought I, I, for whatever reason I was like jeez like, maybe it's because there were so many semi-finals and quarter-finals that he was talking about and Sampras said it too like always seemed quite gracious I thought where he said without Andre I wouldn't have been as good as I was because he drove me to be better that's deadly like that's it's like a that's sport isn't it that's what you want to read yeah exactly. what was your favourite Gil saying the, what was the fucking the belly thing they used to play the soundtrack to do me a favour oh stuff some of his observations were kind of profound yeah there was a few good ones sorry yeah oh, I, I thought them. he was pandering a bit towards the end like the Mandela stuff and that where he was like this has changed my outlook and I'm going to give everything and then like a chapter later he's getting fucking expelled from a tournament for calling the line, linesman a cocksucker three times in a row. I was like, I don't think you took Mandela's profound uh, lessons to her too much. It was almost like reading a Wikipedia page mixed with a, a self-help book at times. You could have read two of those things and you would have got a fair idea of what the book was about at times. I just, he just seemed to be full of wisdom sometimes. And then, like you said, Smith, there, he conflicted then. That's just the character he was. People either loved or hated him when he played and that was for a reason, probably. He's not for everyone. All right, lads, I think we'll move on to our rate expectations. I wonder will there be much love for this book? 
I can't believe we've gotten in so few tennis balls. Like a whole set of them here. Taking a court over that one. <laughs> Making some racket there, Orn. Orn, I'll start with you on that note. Uh, please pack as many puns in as you can. What was your rating for Open and why? Not to make a ball to this one. <laughs> I just love the everybody just shakes their head looking at it. You know, I gotta go on a six and a half. Particularly the start of the book was quite quite interesting and it gave a, a really good background to obviously quite a quite an interesting character. With it with a caveat of you have to be into autobiographies and I feel like if I knew more about tennis and I kinda knew more about him and his story, I say maybe the media's reaction to him, I'd have appreciated that part of the book a bit more. I wouldn't say it was a terrible book but what it was and like would recommend it to say tennis enthusiasts or even sports enthusiasts like from the point of view of psychology and the chat we're having there on say him compared to the latest say Federer and all that sort of thing and as you're mentioning Messi and Ronaldo you know players didn't do that in the past because they didn't have to you know the sports science wasn't there to do it so it was interesting kind of to see he was probably the last generation maybe who kind of just missed that wave yeah I would have six and a half yeah, I, I'm very similar to Oren. I'm going to go for a six. I, I, I thought the start was very good. And then I just kind of, the book kind of fell away from me a little bit. Just, it just felt like, right, you'd be reading and it'd be like, right, 2002 Wimbledon. And then all of a sudden, 2003 Wimbledon, 2004 Wimbledon. It was just kind of, as I said, it was a bit like a Wikipedia page at times. And you're just kind of like, right. And a lot of the chapters just kind of blurred into one. And he's like, he's given detail and he's trying to like use new language to describe these new players and the way they hit the ball and all this crack to keep it interesting. But for me, I don't really watch like Wimbledon. I might watch every second year or something. Like I wouldn't be an avid fan of tennis. I, I respect the sport. I think it's great. I like playing the odd time and all, but I wouldn't know it well enough to maybe re- to understand the book. As you know, if I read the, a book on, on soccer, let's say, obviously I'd be a lot more in tune with it. But um, yeah, and like, that's not on the book. That's just my own personal um, opinion on it. Like, I think as a sports book, Oren said, definitely one for sport fans. And I know Marty, I, I'd say he idolises this book because he is obviously, he, he even plays tennis now and he's all, and he watches every open that you see on telly. So uh, for someone like him, I can definitely imagine him eating it up. But yeah, I suppose mixed with, with not knowing tennis enough, with not really liking autobiographies, I suppose, I'd have to say six is probably fair. Uh, I'm going to give it a seven. I um, I was actually preparing to give it a nine in the first third of the book, and kind of even the first half of the book. I was like, I was reading it, and I was like, this is actually classic because I don't like autobiographies, as I was saying. And I was like, it was transcending that for me, kind of. And I was really enjoying it, and I was really enjoying the reflections on his struggle and like the character of his father, and you know, kind of the human element of what goes into becoming as successful as he became. But when it became more of an autobiography, it really started to lose me. But as Paul just saying, it kind of delved into the the more Tennessee aspects of, of the story. Um, it kind of got a bit less interesting and I kind of, I lost interest in it then. But yeah, still overall, I enjoyed it. I'd recommend it. And I think particularly the first half, there's, there's a lot of a lot of great stories and stuff in it. I thought the first third, I, I was hooked. I loved it. I thought the human element between his relation with his father and his friends, pressure he felt at a young age. And I thought the portrayal of his brother, Philly, was really interesting of like, he was the opposite side of the coin where he had all the pressure and all that from the dad, but probably was didn't have the talent that Andre had. And he had to deal with that, like going to opens and not being ranked and then still trying to be happy for Andre. But his dream was fading in the rearview mirror, like all the time as well. I loved his story and that, like how he'd waver from being the best in the world to being unranked or whatever. And I think he had one great line that stuck with me where he said it took him 22 years to discover my talent to win my first slam and only two years to lose it 
parts were really interesting. And as autobiographies go, as you, we've all mentioned, I'm not mad on them, but as a sports autobiography, it was very good. But I had issues later in the story. Certainly, I, I thought it came across less and less well as the story went on. I thought it came across quite petty and juvenile at times. But definitely, if you're a tennis fan, it's the book for you. And a general sports fan, I think there'd be enough in it to excite you. But I guess you have to like autobiographies first. So yeah, seven for me. All right, so that gives uh, open by Andre Agassi uh, 6.6 from the hour. All right, lads, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with The Paper Bracelet by Rachel English. So we're delighted tonight that Rachel's actually going to join us for an interview for that episode, so we can't wait for that. And in the meantime, as usual, keep an eye on lauraera.com and our social media pages for all the latest updates, and uh, see you soon. Bye.